Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. We have spent the last few weeks, uh, two weeks to be specific, on the overview of these churches. We have spent months diving deep into these churches, looking at very specific details. And my concern was that maybe we went so deep into these letters, sometimes spending two Sundays on just one letter. Some of these letters are only eight to ten verses. So diving super deep into it, that maybe we missed the overarching tone. Maybe we missed the overarching uh, spirit and tone of what Jesus is saying to his church. Because remember, the entirety of this book, the entirety of the scroll or pamphlet would have been read in one sitting in, in the church setting in these seven different churches, just read all the way through. And so we've been asking three specific questions regarding the tone of these letters. The first tone is, what does Jesus not want to see in his church? We looked at the general criticisms and we, we narrowed it down to four general criticisms that Jesus gives to his churches in these two chapters. Number one, traditionalism, which is just going through the motions or nominal Christianity. Jesus would say, if you're just going through the motions, just I'll, I'll spit you out. I'd rather you stop playing that game than to just go through motions. Religious tolerance, we talked about that. Worldliness, number three, not, not necessarily being like the world or loving the world, but just being wrapped up in what the world loves. And then number four, unfaithfulness or infidelity to Jesus Christ. Then last week, we looked at the commendations, what Jesus commends his church for. And we put it all on the foundation that we are seeking to please Jesus. That is not an unbiblical thing to say. We want to please him. We want to glorify him. We want to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. But we never want to do that to earn his favor, to earn his love, to make him love us. We walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We looked at 2 Timothy chapter 2. Nobody uh, entangles him, no soldier in active duty entangles himself in the affairs of this world so that he may please the one who enlisted him. So God has enlisted us in salvation into the church. And therefore we want to please him, but not to be enlisted, not to be saved, but because we've already been saved. We saw five main commendations last week. Serving in love, Jesus commends his church for serving in love, suffering in peace, hating sin, rebuking error, and persevering in faith. So this morning we come to part three of this little sermon series on the tone of these seven letters. And I want to finish with just the promises that God makes to the overcomers. I want to finish with a cascading feeling of promises that God makes to each and every one of us who love him and are called according to his purpose. I want these to just roll over your hearts and, and us to simmer in the realities of the promises that await for us in heaven. If we do not, if we in a short-sighted sense of looking how far away eternity feels, and how hard it is living every single day to please Jesus and to overcome sin, if we miss sight of what God has promised to us and what God is doing through us, then I think that we will give up. We'll lose hope. We'll lose heart. We'll just say, what's the point? Why am I even doing these things? Since I've used my son in the last two sermons as illustrations to introduce the topic, I figured let's use him as one more to round out the trilogy. My precious son, Ethan, we went to Home Depot yesterday to do a little uh, kids' workshop where there's a craft that they give you and you, you do it together. 
They weren't actually having the workshop at Home Depot because they were afraid of coronavirus, so they gave us the kit. We took it home, and we did it together. It's a pair of binoculars that were really cool that he was able to make. They had these tiny little, ham these little nails that you had to hammer. I mean, very small, even very hard for me to hold, that you had to hammer. And my son took a hammer that is even big for me, and he held it in his hands and was kind of dropping it and couldn't steady it. Uh, holds it right at the, the, the top where the metal is, right, instead of using the leverage, but I'm kind of glad he did because if he had held it at the base, my hands would be bloodied right now. So. But he holds it at the top, and I hold the little nail for him, and I say, just lightly tap it, and he just goes, I can never do this. And just, I, I'm not going to be able to do this. And I said, no, Ethan, you can do it. And he hits it, and it kind of goes angled in. I finally said, Hannah, can you come here and hold the nails? Because I'm afraid of what's going to happen to my finger, so why don't you hold the nail? So <laughs> she came over. She held the nail. I just held the binoculars. And Ethan was pounding the nail in, and it just kept kind of going crooked, and I'd straighten it out, and he just said, ugh. He gets that noise from his dad, unfortunately. Every time I hear him go, ugh, it's like, oh, that's what I do. So he goes, ugh, I'm never going to be able to make this. I'm never going to be able to do this. And I, I just said, son, like, we'll get this together. Don't worry. Just one hit at a time, one nail at a time, and before you know it, it's completed. I think we do the exact same thing. We, we tend to think it's so far away, and we look down the road, and we go, I'm never going to make it. I mean, I'm, I'm nowhere close to being where I should be. I'm never going to make it. In 1952, there was a woman named Florence Chadwick who decided to attempt the 26-mile swim between the, coast, the California coastline and Catalina Island. During her swim, Chadwick traveled with a team whose job it was to keep an eye out for sharks. That's where I draw the line. I'm not swimming. <laughs> and also to be prepared to assist in the event of unexpected cramps, injury, or fatigue. Roughly 15 hours into her swim. Again, that's where I, if this could take 15 hours, 15 minutes, I'll swim that, but 15 hours, no. Uh, she swims and a thick fog began to set in, clouding her vision and her confidence. Her mother happened to be one of the people in the boats with her, at, swimming alongside of the boats. Uh, the mother is in the boat and she relayed to her team that she didn't think Chadwick could complete the swim. She was slowly giving up. So finally, Florence swam for another hour and decided to call it quits. And as she sat in the teetering boat, taken out of the water, as the fog cleared, she discovered that if she had just continued for less than another mile, she would have made it. It was this close, but because the fog had set in, she couldn't see it. And because she couldn't see it, that took away her hope, her confidence, and her assurance. Maybe you fall into that category this morning. Maybe you genuinely wonder, am I going to make it? Can I make it? Will I make it? Or maybe you're wondering, is it even worth trying to make it? Is it even worth it to try and make it to the end? If that's you this morning, then this sermon is for you and for all of our hearts to give us courage, confidence, and assurance to fight to be overcomers. So let's pray and ask God's blessing on our time and then we will dive in together. Father, we are so grateful for this sermon series that we've been able to examine your scriptures together these last few weeks and few months in these 
precious letters. And God, we need your help, your assistance yet again. We need your Holy Spirit to give us divine illumination. Our physical eyes can see the text, but our spiritual eyes, if not opened by Christ and by the Holy Spirit, we will not see. That's why we say every single Sunday as we are preparing to study your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, open our eyes that we would behold wonderful things from your law. If you do not do that work, we won't get it. That's one of the exhortations you even give to your churches in these letters. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. We want to have ears to hear, but they're stopped up with the earwax of sin. They're stopped up with the earwax of some self-dependency, ability and self-reliance to know on our own what this book says. So, Father, we come humbly before you, renouncing any form of self-reliance, admitting our weakness, glorying in our weakness so that you would perfect your strength in and through us. Give us courage, give us assurance, give us hope, give us comfort. And as we said through song, show us Jesus, who is the reason why we want to overcome. We pray it all in his name. Amen. There are nine different promises that Jesus gives to his churches in these letters. Nine different promises. We're going to go through them quickly. And then I want to ask some shepherding questions on the back end of this sermon to kind of engage our hearts with these promises. Promise number one in Revelation chapter 2 verse 11 is the promise of immortality. The promise of immortality. This is to the church in Smyrna, chapter 2 verse 11. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes, the overcomer, the Nico, the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. You won't be hurt by the second death. Yes, everyone will die one time, but then there's an option in the afterlife. There are those who will be hurt by the second death, and there are those who will never taste the second death. And so Jesus says, if you overcome, you're not going to be hurt by the second death. It's not going to touch you. It's not going to hurt you. It's not going to harm you. You lose your life now in this life, and you'll gain it later. The one who doesn't overcome is not promised protection from the second death. But those who do, though the first death might be really bad, the second could never hurt us. This is like what Jesus says in Luke chapter 21, verses 16 through 17. You will be betrayed. He says this to his disciples. You're going to be betrayed even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and they'll put you to death. You'll be hated by all because of my name. And yet, not even a hair on your head will perish. I love that. They're going to kill you, and not even a hair on your head is going to die. You know the ways that they killed many of the saints of old either cutting off their head or burning them alive. Well, hair's not going to grow from a head that's been cut off from the body. And if you burn them alive, the hair's gone. And Jesus says, but it's never going to be hurt. It can't be hurt in the next life. I will protect you. What can mere man do to you? They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. And so we're promised immortality. Number two, we're promised a white stone. This is to the overcomers, to those who fight and overcome. We are promised a white stone with a secret name. This is verse 17 of chapter 2 to the church in Pergamum. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to him some of the hidden manna. I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. We're just going to look at the back half of that promise. We'll look at the hidden manna later. 
You'll get a white stone. If you remember when we studied this church in Pergamum, the white stone either means a ticket for uh, the feast. If you were victorious in your race, you were given a white stone, which was your entrance ticket to the feast of all of those who were winners. This was the winners, the, the victors' feast, and you were able to participate in it only if you had this white stone. It was your uh, entrance. It was your access. Another possible interpretation is that a white stone was vindication given to you by a judge, that you were acquitted of a wrongdoing. If you were condemned by somebody as guilty and a judge found you to be innocent, they would give you a white stone to say, take this around, you can hold this up, you have been acquitted. I think both of those work. You and I have been acquitted of any wrongdoing. Not only have we been declared not guilty, as in our sin has been taken away and the penalty gone, but we've also been declared perfectly righteous because of what Jesus has done in our place, on our behalf. So we get a white stone and a secret name. I love that. We get a secret name. It's a name that only you and God know. No one else knows it. Meaning a couple things. Number one, there's individuality in heaven. We're not just going to be some blob of people in heaven. There's individuality. And God knows you personally, specifically, specially in a secret way that he doesn't know other people that way. He knows them in different ways. He lavishes his love upon you, yes, in a general sense to the church, but specifically to you. He loves you. He knows your name and he loves you. And you and I are going to have a a rock in heaven one day that's going to say a name that as you look at my name in heaven, you're going to go, what does that even mean? I'm probably just going to cry and go, oh. If I could tell you the stories, this is exactly what that means. And I look at your rock and I go, what does that mean? What does that mean? It's a secret name. I don't know what it means. Only you and God know. So there's a beautiful relationship in heaven that God has with his people. Number three, you're promised white garments. White garments. This is chapter 3, verse 5. This is the letter to the church in Sardis. Chapter 3, verse 5. Uh, Starting in verse 4, there there are those who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. And I'm not going to erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his holy angels. You will be clothed in white garments. And I love the way that Jesus says that. There are those in Sardis that are fighting to live out righteousness, And in the end, once they get to eternity, once they enter into heaven, they are given total righteousness, complete glorification. They're clothed. It's a passive verb. I I can't clothe myself. I have to be clothed by the work of another. Just like in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they tried to clothe themselves with fig leaves to cover their own guilt and sin and shame, tried to cover it up and say, see, we know we did something wrong, but we're covering it up so you can't see it, God. And God says, that doesn't work. I need to do the covering for you. And he kills an animal and he gives them an animal skin and he says, I've covered you. I did the work of covering you. Now you are clean. That's what we're promised in heaven. Number four, we're promised permanence. We're promised permanence and new names. Permanence and new names. This is uh, chapter 3, verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12, to the church in Philadelphia. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, he won't go out from it anymore. And I'm going to write on him the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven, and my new name, which we're told in Revelation 19, verse 16, God's new name is given to us as Lord, as Savior. He gives us complete access 
into, unrestricted access into his throne room. We're given permanence. We're a pillar in his temple. There's no temple in heaven. The Bible is very clear. So this is figurative language that the Philadelphians would have known. Remember in Philadelphia, there was a huge earthquake that destroyed the city. And so they just moved out of the city. They just said, we'll, we'll stop living in the city because it just keeps getting destroyed. Let's build tents and stay outside the city. And Jesus says, I'm going to make you a, t- a pillar so that you'll never be moved, you'll never be shaken, and I'm going, to, I'm going to give you a permanent home, a permanent residence, so that you don't have to live in a tent outside. You can live in my city. I'm going to give you permanence and a new name. The new name is a brand. It's a stamp of ownership. No one can take it away from you. You are Christ's, and that's final. Number five, you're given authority from Christ. This is in chapter 3, verses 20, verse 21, and also in chapter 2, verses 26 through 27. This is the church to Laod- the Laodicean church and the Thyatiran church. Jesus says to both of them, you're going to get authority. You're going to rule and you're going to reign. In verse 21 of chapter 3, Jesus says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, just as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. You're going to give be given authority. You're going to be given eternal authority to rule and to reign with Christ. And we're going to look at this a lot more specifically next week when we get to chapter 4. There are people in heaven who are given authority to varying degrees. We ask kind of why that happens. And again, we'll talk about it a lot more next week. But the reality is you can only be given authority by somebody who already has that authority. You can't be given authority by someone who has no authority to give it to you. And so since God himself gives us authority, he's saying, I know who you are, I have all authority, and I'm exercising my authority to give it to you so that you can rule and reign with me. This is Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 9, and that's what Jesus gives to Thyatira in uh, chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end to him, I will give authority over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of potter are broken to pieces, as also I have received from my Father. I'm going to give him authority. This is both eternal kingdom, eternal state, and millennial kingdom. I'm going to give you authority to rule and to reign. Number six, we are going to be given advocacy by Christ. Christ will be our advocate. We already saw that with the white stone, but this is also in chapter 3, verse 5 with Sardis. I will not erase their names from the book of life, but I will confess their name before my Father and before his angels. Your name is always secure, and I'm not going to blot it out. That was a practice that was done when somebody passed away in the city. They had a, a, a registry of names of those who were citizens in the city, and if somebody passed away, you would blot the name out. They're gone. And since you and I will not be hurt by the second death, then our name will forever stay in that book. We will not die. God will protect us, and God will also confess our name before his holy angels. Number seven, we are given hidden manna. Hidden manna. This is chapter 2, verse 17. We already read it. We are given hidden manna. This is a reference to what was inside the Ark of the Covenant. Inside the Ark, there was manna that you placed in there, and you shut the Ark, and you never took it out. And God says, I'm going to give you that hidden manna. I'm going to give you something that was secret, but given to you so that you can feast and be satisfied, and we know that that is Christ himself. We know that was Christ himself. I'm going to give you myself so that you can be satisfied. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 6. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, not in a a literal sense, but in a figure sense. Feast on me and me alone. Find your satisfaction in me alone. Number eight, we are given access to the tree of life. This is chapter 2, verse 7. If you go back to 
the church in Ephesus. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We lost that tree of life in Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. But for the overcomer, you're going to be given free access to that tree. This also reminds us we're going to be physical creations in the new heavens and the new earth. We're not ghosts. We're eating. We're going to be satisfied by what God has given to us to enjoy. And if you remember that phrase in Greek, the paradise of God, uh, the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God, it's literally the paradise, which is God himself. God himself is our paradise. Not the tree itself, but God himself. And finally, number nine, that leads to the reality of Jesus will give us himself. To those who overcome, Christ will give us himself. Let me just go back and repeat all of these so that you have them. Number one, we are given immortality. We're promised immortality if we overcome. Number two, we are promised a white stone with a secret name on it. Number three, we are given white garments. Number four, we are given permanence and new names. Number five, we are given authority from Jesus himself. Number six, we are given advocacy by Christ. He is our advocate. Number seven, we are promised hidden manna. Number eight, we are promised access to the tree of life. And number nine, we are promised to have Jesus himself. He will give us himself. This is in chapter 2, verse 28. Chapter 2, verse 28. I will give, this is the church in Thyatira, to the overcomer, I will give him the morning star. And as you remember when we went through that, the morning star is a reference to Jesus himself. I'm going to give you myself. Nothing held back. Totally, fully, in its completeness, all of my glory and all of who I am. This is why Paul said in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, to live is Christ and death is gain because I get everything I've always wanted. In that chapter, he says, I'm hard-pressed to determine what I want. It looks like they could kill me. I might die. And that's okay for me because I want to go be with Jesus. And if I stay on in the flesh, then I'm staying here for the purpose of your joy and sharing the gospel with you. But I really want to get out of here and be with Jesus because I know in heaven I'm promised Christ himself. So, nine promises that are given to those who overcome. And I know we've gone through those very quickly, and if you want more depth into those, that's what we did for the last three months in our study through these seven letters. I want to ask just three questions as we wrap up this whole three-part sermon series. Number one, what's our motivation to overcome? What's our motivation to overcome? Is it these nine promises? Is it something we are going to get Is it some aspect of blessing of heaven? What is our motivation? And I will say very simply, the one who understands Christ knows that Jesus himself is worth fighting for. He is our motivation. What is our motivation to overcome? Yes, it's all these blessings, but all these blessings point to that last one, the promise of getting Christ himself. He is everything we've always wanted. He's everything we know we need. He's everything we know that satisfies our souls. That's why we've been singing the songs we've been singing this morning, Satisfaction in Christ. Thomas Guthrie says, In the blood of Jesus, to wash out sin's darkest stains, in the grace of God to purify the foulest heart, in peace to calm life's roughest storms, in hopes to cheer guilt's darkest hour, 
and a courage that defies death and descends calmly into the tomb, in that which makes the poorest rich and without which the richest are poor indeed. The gospel has treasure greater far than east or west unfold, and its rewards are more precious than all the stores of gold in the earth. This is why Matthew 13, that smallest parable in the Bible, there's a man who finds a field, there's treasure buried in the field, And out of his joy in seeing that treasure, he goes home, he sells everything that he has to get that field so he can get that treasure. That's what an overcomer looks like. An overcomer looks like somebody who says, I have found the greatest delight in the the universe. I found the greatest source of satisfaction, and that's all I want. Jesus is all I want, and therefore I'm giving up everything to get him. Is that hard to do? Absolutely. That's why this is even written, because it's hard to give up everything to follow Christ. But as one author said, at the Sea of Galilee, Jesus called his disciples to follow him. And so they did, leaving behind their boats and their businesses. They were so taken with Jesus that they never felt the cost of their renunciation. They walked in the epicenter of a new adoration that had silently slain their old affections. Renunciation that is self-aware is mere asceticism, suddenly boasting in its own magnificent sacrifice. The apostles came to Christ having surrendered the possessions that stood between them and the will of God. And even so, we do not remember them because they chose poverty, but because they adored Jesus. If we too are spellbound by His excellence, if we're spellbound by His excellence, then relinquishment will be more of a byproduct of devotion rather than a prerequisite for it. We have to relinquish. But it's not relinquish in order to obtain, but relinquish because Jesus has given himself to us. And therefore, I know I've got to let everything go to have him because I've tasted and I've seen that the Lord is good. He finishes by saying, true lovers of Christ can stand the pain of self-denial. John Gerstner said, when people are made over again, they come running irresistibly because they wouldn't have it any other way. You can put all kinds of obstacles in their path, but they are men of violence. They're going to take that kingdom by force. When they find this pearl, they're going to sell everything they have and get it. When they find that hidden treasure in the field, it will be theirs. They're going to thump on that door until it's open. They're going to have because they hunger and they thirst after righteousness. So what is our motivation for fighting our sin, for overcoming sin, temptation, self? What's our motivation? It's Christ. It's Christ alone. So brother and sister, do you love Jesus and are you fighting to love him more? Jesus says to the overcomer, I'm going to give myself. The second question is, what happens to those who quit? What happens to those who do not overcome? And we can say it very clearly, it's the exact opposite of all these nine promises. To those who choose to quit, give up, and ultimately say Jesus is not worth it, they will be destroyed by the second death. They will not be given access to the victor's feast. They will not be acquitted of any of their guilt, but rather they will be cast away forever, wearing their own garments of guilt and sin forever with no possibility of pardon or forgiveness. They will be judged They'll be rejected, and for all eternity, they will never see the face of Jesus and know his glory and his grace. 
I'll never know his embrace. One of the realities of these two chapters for me personally, as I walk through this, I need to work on myself and fight to overcome, yes, but there are countless millions in the world that don't even know there's a battle. That don't even know. Just as our our dear sister Grace said, they don't even know who Jesus is. They've never even heard the name of Jesus. And theirs is an eternal destiny separated from Christ if they do not turn and follow him. So these promises to the overcomers have motivated me personally in evangelism. Brothers and sisters, we don't have much more time left on this earth, and there are so many people around us that need to hear the gospel. Share it boldly. Share it awkwardly. Just in line, I I went to uh, Vaughn's yesterday with my son to pick up ice cream, uh, as Marty would appreciate because he loves ice cream. So we went to get ice cream, and we were standing in line, and I was thinking about this sermon, and I just thought, as we were walking through the checkout, there was a man behind me, and I thought, how can I stand up before you and say, you need to share the gospel if I'm not willing to be in those awkward moments? And how many times in, in the checkout line or something you go, I would love to share, but oh, I just don't have enough time, and I don't want to misrepresent Jesus, and I don't want to, I mean, we have all the excuses in the book, right? So I just said, uh, do you know who Jesus is? And he's like, yeah, I've heard of Jesus. Grew up in church. I don't, like, I don't like church. And literally that was it. Beep, we have to go. I said, hey, I'm a pastor of a church, and I understand why there are so many times when people walk away from church because they've had a bad experience. I'd love to hear your experience because I'd love to show you the God of the Bible because my guess is he's not the same God that was being preached to you in your church that made you walk away. That's all you get in, Right? Probably even less than that, because Ethan says, let's get to ice cream. Come on, Dad, there's something more urgent here. (laughs) But just to say awkwardly, do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus? There are so many people in this world that don't. What will happen to those who quit? They will experience eternal condemnation forever. So what's our motivation? It's Jesus. What happens to those who quit? A terrible eternal destiny. So finally, number three, how do we overcome? How do we overcome? If we know we should, if we know we must, and we don't want to quit, then how do we overcome? How do we overcome? Two ways. Number one, we fight. We fight. That's what the word Nico means. It's victory. It's an overcomer. It's somebody who's conquered. Just write down these verses. We don't have time to go through them. James chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Blessed is the man who perseveres because that person will be given the crown of life. Those who don't persevere don't get the crown of life. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. You could also write in there, Matthew chapter 5, only the pure in heart will see God. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 19 declares that false teachers can overtake you with their false teaching and then you would become a slave to their false teaching and deny Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, we need to wage war with the fleshly lusts in our hearts that wage war against our souls. There's a fight, there's a battle going on. And as General Patton said, you don't win wars by dying for your country. You win wars by making the other men die for theirs. You are in the middle of a war for your soul and you cannot say, well, I'll just take one for the team here. You need to fight your sin. You need to fight. Matthew chapter 11, verse 12 says, the kingdom 
of heaven is taken by force by violent men who take it by force. This isn't speaking militarily. This is speaking in your heart. You'll do whatever it takes to fight against sin. Christopher Love, a Puritan pastor in the 1600s, said this, This is a holy violence whereby men press forward to take hold of this holy kingdom. And so it's generally taken to be a holy violence of affection or a gracious deposition that was implanted and wrought in the hearts of many men in John the Baptist's days. Violence is here opposed to a sense of lukewarmness and moderation in religion, to that coldness and frozenness that is in the hearts of men under the preaching of the word. It's a call to a holy violence to distinguish between those who are Christians indeed and other men to distinguish them from the scribes and the Pharisees who were cold and frozen under the ministry of the gospel. They were so earnest after Christ and the gospel that no difficulties or discouragements could take them off of their pursuit of Christ. They were so greedy for Christ that no force could pluck them away. They would rather die than be drawn away from the gospel. This is a metaphor taken from warriors who force their passage into a city, taking it by storm and dividing the spoils. We have to fight The word overcome is a description of somebody who is victorious. That means there's a battle that they won. The question is, what are these overcomers victorious over? And the simple answer is they're victorious over unbelief. They're victorious over unbelief. They overcame the temptation to walk away from the faith, to stop fighting sin, and to not heed the warnings of Christ. These overcomers are victorious over sin, over unbelief, and therefore therefore victorious in the battle for holiness for zeal for Christ and for faith. And those alone enter heaven. Only the overcomers enter heaven. Now I know that in our theology, and I believe it's thoroughly biblical, he who began the work in us will be faithful to complete it. Yes, amen and amen. But can I just give a warning Uh, from one commentator who said it this way, somehow, whether actively or passively, directly or indirectly, we have come to believe that the Bible's doctrine of eternal security, which we absolutely believe is true, somehow we've come to believe that that doctrine renders null and void the possibility of apostasy. That somehow this idea of once saved, always saved, I don't have to do anything. No, once saved, you're going to keep on fighting. Only because Jesus is fighting with you, but you will fight. We know true believers are not saved by their works. They're rather, the the works verify their salvation. But I believe this is a message to all of our hearts that there is never a place where we come to where we coast. There's never a place where we come to where we say, I've kind of made it, I've, I've arrived, and I can just coast in my battle with sin. The beauty of these letters is that there were overcomers in all of these churches which is so encouraging because some of these churches are really struggling, but there's overcomers in all of them. And the beauty of this is the overcomer message is given to individuals in the church, not churches. To the church, here's all the things, and to the overcomer individually. You can overcome even if the church never overcomes. You can overcome even if our church were to, to stop, were to turn a different way, you still can fight and choose to follow Jesus. So how do we overcome? Number one, we fight, and we fight hard and we never let up, and we never give up, and we don't coast. But number two, how do we overcome? We fight because we know Jesus is fighting with us, and he's fighting for us. We fight because we know Jesus is fighting with us, and he's fighting for us. We're not alone in this fight. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13 Yes, first chapter 1, verse 6, he who began the good work will be faithful to complete it, but then chapter 2 gives us the definition of that. 
work out the salvation you've been given. Not work for, that's a different Greek word. Work out the salvation you've been given. With fear and trembling, work. Why? Because it is Jesus who is working in you. He is at work in you. Even the good works we've been given, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, they're given by God because we're created as his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for the good works that he gave us to walk in, even before the foundation of the earth. So we fight. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're coasting and you think, once saved, always saved. I believe the gospel message. I can kind of do whatever I want. I can live like a, a pagan. I can live like a heathen. I can just live like a non-believer, but I know I'm saved because I prayed a prayer when I was six years old. The Bible would say that's, that's false assurance. The Bible would say that you, you are here this morning to, to be woken up by the gospel, to hear the gospel, and to realize if you cling to Christ through the gospel message and then you deny it by just clinging to everything this world has to offer, and you just hang on to the world, and the world's desires are your greatest hopes, dreams, and desires. If you look like the world, live like the world, love the world, you have no love for Christ in your heart. Even if you're here this morning sitting in a church, you still have no love for Christ. But if you're sitting here this morning and you say, I am fighting to love Jesus. I am fighting tooth and nail, clawing to work my way, and the burden of sin is on my back, and it just seems like every three steps forward, 50 backwards. And you say, I'm fighting, and I'm fighting, and I'm worried, and I'm concerned, and I just can't get my grip. I'm I'm, I, I want to win the war, but I'm not. I want to be victorious, but I'm failing. I am in desperate need of help. Then can I say you're in the perfect place? Jesus does not help those who help themselves. God helps those who know they can't help themselves. Augustine said, the beginning of knowledge is to know oneself to be a great sinner. If you say, I'm fighting and I'm fighting and I'm fighting with everything that I've got and I just, I'm struggling and I'm struggling, but I know he's better than than this sin. I know he's better and I'm fighting to love him more than this sin then brother or sister, you are on the right track and this message is given to you to comfort you to say, there's only a few more miles to go. You're right, he is better. So let the taste of his glory be on the lips of your soul to say, I want him and nothing else. Get in community with other believers to encourage you in the fight. Our problem is not that we are weak. If you're here this morning, you say, I'm weak, I'm not doing this, I'm struggling. Our problem is not that we're weak. Our problem is that we don't really know how weak we truly are. So this morning, we need to own up to the fact that we can't do this on our own. We are going to fight, but we're going to fail in our fighting. That's why we love the gospel. If you seek assurance based on your ability to cling to Christ, you will walk away constantly doubting your salvation. But if you realize that there's no mighty men and women of God, there's no mighty man or woman of God except for Jesus Christ. We are all but failures in desperate need of God's grace, and God himself holds on to our hands even when we fail to grip onto his. We fight, yes, but we fight only knowing that we can gain victory because he fights with us and he fights for us. You remember Florence Chadwick at the beginning of the message? Two months after Chadwick's failed attempt She tried to swim once more. Once again, a thick fog set in. 
But this time she had a mental image of the shoreline in her mind as she pushed herself along. And not only did she succeed, but Chadwick ended up making the swim an additional two times. She knew what the end looked like. For good measure, Chadwick also became the first woman to swim, swim the English Channel in both directions. So she did that in record time as well. You might think, I'm failing. I, I, can't, I can't get my feet under me. I'm struggling. How am I going to have hope? Cling to Christ. John Flavel said it this way, Oh, be not too quick to bury the church before she is dead. As long as Jesus is her head, his body will never die. Some of these churches in this portion of Scripture looked really bad. And maybe, hopefully by God's grace, we won't, but maybe we do. Maybe one day we look really bad like these churches. And Jesus would say, I have this against you, I have this against you, I have this against you. But don't be so quick to just say, well, the church is a failure and we're never going to make it. Samuel John Stone, who wrote The Church's One Foundation, said this, Though with a scornful wonder men see her so oppressed, by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed, yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish. He is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale against all foe or traitor, brothers and sisters, you ever will prevail. Let's cling to Christ, who is the only way that we can overcome. Father, we thank you for these words. Thank you for these letters that you wrote so many years ago and for their encouragement, their challenge, their admonishment to us. And we want to fight motivated not so that we can save ourselves, but because you have saved us and you have promised to keep working in us. So may we place ourselves in the means of grace. May we place ourselves using the spiritual disciplines in running the race well. And God, may you be glorified as we cling to you, even that completely, imperfectly. But we know that you cling to us with a perfect grasp. Thank you. We pray it all in your name. Amen. Well, we were going to sing three songs.